0: We're now starting uh, Sefer Shemot and Parshat Shemot. And although Parshat Shemot has tons of amazing things in it, uh, including one of our favorites, which is the whole scene of Moshe at the lodge, uh, there is Moshe's complaint to God at the end. There is 14,000 different things to talk about, about Mamad Hasna, <coughs> including the signs that Moshe gets, Moshe's refusal, Moshe having a difficulty speaking or not, uh, there is the identity of Moshe's um, wife's father or brother, or who's Itra, who's Ruel. We got lots of great stuff in the parsha. But because it's the beginning of Sefer Shmot, I want to take a look at something at the very beginning. And in order to do that properly, I'm going to um, to start in a way that we don't usually do, which is to look at the Haknamot of two of the classic Mefarshim one classic, one more modern, but they're considered classic. Uh, one is the Ramban's introduction to Sefer Shmot, and the other is the Nitziv, who, of course, died in the 1890s, uh, his commentary to Sefer Shmot, the introduction to his, to his commentary, because it's going to illuminate for us um, some of the direction about the, the larger question we want to deal with, which really informs the first four parashot here, in a sense, but in a sense, it informs all of Jewish history, because I think it's safe to say that the foundational moment of Jewish history is Yitziat Mitzrayim. And the foundational event of, of Jewish history is Yitziat Mitzrayim. Think about how many mitzvot are Zechel Yitziat Mitzrayim. Think about how every Shabbat and Yom Tov is Zechel Yitziat Mitzrayim. I mean, it, it stands as paramount. And indeed, HaKadosh Baruch Hu introduces himself to us as Anochi Adonai Racha Asher Tzitich HaMeher not famously as Asher Barati Yishamayim Va'aretz or anything else. And, uh, and we're going to see that the that the roots of Yitziat Mitzrayim, which, of course, start in Shibud Mitzrayim, in the slavery, um, actually have their roots not in Shemot itself, but in Breshit. So let's take a look. The Ramban uh, says the following. I'm not going to read the Ramban. I'll just show you the Ramban and, and suggest the Ramban presents something of a, uh, not sophisticated, but a basic literary theory in understanding Shemot. And he says... Um, that Shemot should be understood as the realization of all of the illusions in Sefer Breshit. We have to go back a little bit and note that the Ramban's approach throughout Sefer Breshit, which he explicates quite clearly in Breshit Perek Yudbet, Hasud Vav, um, he says, I'm going to tell you a big rule about Breshit, that all of the stories of the Avot were essentially creating historic, paradigms for the children and he says as an example uh, Avram went down to Egypt which the Ramban excoriates him for doing that Avram went down to Egypt because of a famine and suffered there, Sarah was taken from him and um, and uh, his uh, the family went through difficulties but they were enriched and then after they were enriched they left with great wealth and they were thrown out of the country and he says that's going to happen with the children too so this is the Ramban's approach. So the Ramban here says that this is really the book of the realization of, the, of all of the allusions in Sefer Breshit. Furthermore, he says it's called Sefer HaGulah. Now, one parenthetic note, which is important, is that the, the names, Breshit, Shemot, Vayikor, Midbar, are not names that Chazal used. Chazal had other names for them. So, for instance, um, they referred to um, Sefer uh, Vaikra throughout the canon as Torat Kohanim. They referred to Sefer Bamidbar as Chumash Kudim and Dvarim as Mishne Torah. Uh, Breshit really wasn't referred to that much, but once in a while it was called Sefer Yitzira. And the Ramban says that, the, that Chazal's name for Sefer Shmot was Sefer HaGeulah. And the Ramban then gives a definition to what Geulah is. Geulah is not you're in trouble and you get out, but it's more restorative. You're restored to your previous high and noble position. And he says, therefore, and that's his explanation of why Sefer Shemot has to start with a recap of the descent to Egypt. Because has to start with reminding us we started with this exile to Egypt, which is self-imposed because of the famine. And it ends with ge'ula. So he says, if ge'ula meant to just get out of the mess, then it should have ended basically at create Yamsuf at Maximum at Har Sinai. But ge'ula means to be restored to your original high position, and that high position was to have the shechina resting among you. And therefore, Sefer Shemot ends, the very last pasuk is, that the cloud rested on the mishkan, demonstrating that the shechina was once again manifest among the people. So that's how he he explains it. But the reason I brought that in is to show you the intrinsic and organic connection and causal connection between Breshit and Shmot. The Nitziv takes this a little bit further, and he mentions the names that Chazal gave, and he says that in the Bahag, he referred to to Shmot as Sefer Asheni, and he plays with the Sefer Asheni, and he again talks about how Shmot was the realization of reshit, but he adds something that the Ramban didn't have. He said, so much of our literature, um, which is admittedly uh, parochial and, and ethnocentric, sees all of creation as revolving around Am Yisrael and Am Yisrael's acceptance of the Torah. The very famous agada um, on the sixth day of, of creation you know, every day is Vayer Yom sheni. The last one is Vayer Yom Hashishi. So famous drush on that is that all of creation was waiting for the sixth day of Simon. And if Amisrael accepts the Torah, fine. And if not, creation is is reversed. You know, it's all of all of the creation is waiting for mamad Arsinai. And if it doesn't happen, then creation gets canceled. That's the midrash. Now, the reason that Sib brings that in is to say that. Shmot is really the completion of Breshit. The creation of the world gets completed in the second book, which is Am Yisrael being redeemed, being brought to Har Sinai and accepting the Torah. So it takes a different path than the Ramban, but what they have in common is they see an, in, an internal twined connection between Breshit and Shmot, in which Shmot is the realization of, or the denouement of, say, Breshit. Okay, I'm bringing that up as an introduction because I'd like to suggest that what we read about in the introduction, the opening lines of Sefer shmot we're going to look quickly through the first chapter of shmot which I have in front of you, is really something that we can source back to Sefer Breshit in some ways that may be surprising. All right? Famously, the opening passage of shmot lists the just the sons, not the rest of the family, uh, that came down with Yaakov to Egypt, and famously Rashi asked the question, why count them again? We already count them in Breshit, and Rashi has his beautiful agada, and the Ramban has his explanation, which we just mentioned, that you have to go back to the Gola, or the Galut, in order to set it up as a safer Geulah. Notice that Yosef is mentioned separately. He was also mentioned separately in the main counting in Vayigash, and it mentions the 11 sons who came down with Yaakov, and then Yosef Ayav Mitzrayim. Okay, fine, and we, we get that. But Yosef seems to be highlighted and singled out, because these psukim easily could have said, Ruven, Shimon, Leviv, Yudai Issachar, Zvulun, Yosef, Ubin, Yamin. Could have said that, because I'm not so concerned with who actually came down and who was already there. My main point is, who's there now? But notice that there, something that's a little awkward happens, which is, the text says, these are Bnei who came down, it counts the 11, and then it says, Nefesh Yotzei Nafesh, and if you remember, in Vayigash, we had a big, big problem, where would you get 70 from? According to the count, it's 69, so is it Yaakov, is it Yocheved, who's the 70th? But to complicate things further, in that original count of 69, three of the 69 were Yosef, Ephraim, and manasseh and here it says there were 70 who came? Who, who were the the, the fruit of Jacob's loins, the Yosef Ayav Mitzrayim, which could lead you to say there's seventy besides Yosef and his kids, which makes it even more confusing. But in any case, Yosef is highlighted here. And when this generation dies, how is it mentioned? Yosef Yosef and his brothers die. Now, by the way, in, if that's all I have, I'm not interested at all. It's not it's not noteworthy because. Yosef, of course, is the king. Yosef is the viceroy. Yosef is the cause of them coming down. I understand why he's mentioned here. However, when we get to the next paragraph, we may have to look back at Yosef's being highlighted and see it in a different light. So the next paragraph is the one I want to read through. asher Okay, so a new king comes, and several p'shad is the, the original pharaoh of Yosef's time died. Yosef also died, new pharaoh, it may even be like somebody shown him, say there was a new dynasty, and uh, and he had no knowledge of previous things, or didn't want to know about previous things, and that this group of foreigners was the family of, the descendants of, family of the guy who had saved the country, they didn't want to know about it. And I believe what this means is, Paro turns to his army and says, the army of B'nai Israel is greater and more powerful than we are. Because this is all military talk, as you'll see. We have to deal wisely with them. Because if they get even bigger and if there's a war, they're going to join. And look at Nosaf connecting with Yosef. They're going to join our enemies, the Nilchamban of And whether Alaminarets means they'll leave and take everything with them, or it means we'll be forced to leave, either way, they represent a fifth column. So we have to deal wisely with them. Okay, what did they say? What does he say? So they put taskmasters who were essentially um, um, collectors of a labor tax. Tax, right? Um, but the purpose of it was not in order to gain what the tax brought, but the purpose was to afflict them. And the, the notion seems to be, the way this forno reads it, the, the notion seems to be in other words, let's make life really uncomfortable for them, and they'll want to leave. In the meantime, what do they do? They build two cities, which are storage cities. In other words, they build huge warehouses in the cities of Pitom and Ramses. This is not the land of Ramses. This is Ramses. It's vocalized differently. It's a different place. And they build these storehouse cities, which are essentially large warehouses. Now, Right away, our ears should be tingling a little bit because here is the family of Yosef's or Yosef's brother's descendants and Yosef's descendants who are now working for the state building storehouses to store things and they're building it for the state. Okay. As they afflicted them, and the whole point of trying to afflict them was either to Subdue their population growth, or else to get them to leave. Instead, what happened? They grew and they spread throughout the land. They weren't leaving, and they weren't shrinking. bnei and the Egyptians were kind of fed up with them. All right. Vayavidu bnei Yisrael So the next stage seems to be to give them backbreaking work. And notice vayavidu, the verb avod, servant, slave, work, and slave, uh, both as verbs and nouns, um, shows up five times. Here in this uh, in this passage, and I think that's significant. They work them with backbreaking work. They bid, they embitter their lives with hard work. All the materials we're talking about Which means also field work. All the work that was done with backbreaking work, and the text seems to be sorry for the pun, belaboring the word avoda here, using it unnecessarily. The second after that pasuk would be, at kol Asher seems to be extra, as if the text is just trying to really hammer home the word evid. Okay. That is plan one. Plan one is public. Plan one is uh, state slavery. And the state slavery that gets from sort of pointless work, but shall we say it's done in order to afflict them, but there is a, a goal at the end to backbreaking work, which seems just basically break their spirit. All right, plan two, which may be uh, uh, coterminous with plan one or may have followed it. So the king speaks to the midwives. Now, who are these midwives? Uh, one name is shifra, one is named Puah. All right, Shifran Pua are both glott Egyptian names. Uh, So who are Shifran Pua? So the simplest shot, I believe, is Shifran Pua are two Egyptian women who are in charge of all of the midwives who help the Hebrew women give birth. And now Paro is doing everything he can to stem Jewish birth. So, uh, by the way, what I'm suggesting is, uh, the Abravanel mentions it, he said that there's no way in the world that Paro is going to entrust the job that he's going to give to these women, to Jewish women, to think that they would do it, All right? So that's why Bar maintains these Egyptian women. And again, I think that's simple pshat. Mealdota ivriot means hamialdot etta ivriot, the ones who who um, who help give who help birth the. <laughs> um. And so, what does he say? Byomer By the way, if Shifr and are really are Jewish heroines, that flies in the face of the idea of. But in Israel, were so righteous that they never changed their names. They here they take uh, Egyptian names. So one way or the other. Okay. We did a share on this years ago on the Ovnaim. Um, they said when you help birth the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. Now this is a little bit difficult, and what we talked about then, then in the shiur is that the ovnay may actually have been a, a prenatal test to identify the gender, because it's a lot easier to cause what seems like, oops, a miscarriage uh, if the woman's still pregnant than to automatically, every kid that's born, if it's a boy, to kill it and a girl, to let her live. I uh, think people are going to stop giving their business to the Egyptian midwives pretty soon. Uh, but in any case, in <clears> I <throat> if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. So the Mialdot feared Elohim. Now, this does not necessarily reflect a Jewish motif. The fear of Elohim is something that we find in several contexts, including when Yosef is talking to Mrs. Potiphar and says, And, And it's when Yosef, pretending to be an Egyptian, speaks to his brothers, seems to me mean I, I'm afraid of the gods or I'm, I have moral accountability. it not necessarily pointing to Hashem specifically. All right. So they had fear of God. They didn't do what the king told them. They actually kept the boys alive. Okay. So he summons them. Why are you letting the boys live? Now, by the way, some, many of you point out, some of you should point out, at least, these mi'aldot are not the actual midwives, they're the bosses. You can't have two midwives for a whole nation of how many hundreds of thousands of people we got. So here's the answer. These Hebrews are not like Egyptian women. These women are themselves midwives. So they give birth before we get there. Once we get there, we can't kill the kid. All right, so God was very good to these Mialdot, and the people grew. In other words, these mealdot got more business because they were doing a good thing, so more Jewish women are giving, giving birth. And a couple of years ago, we spoke about that. God They had houses made for them. What does that mean? Does it mean that God blessed these women with great families? Does it mean that Paro built houses for them so he could keep an eye on where they were? It could be a lot of different things. And then Paro then gave the command that any boy that's born, you cast into the water. Right? You have to throw them into the water. Okay. As you can see, I've marked up a lot of these words. You notice, before we leave the page, that the word, and anything with the root, is highlighted, it's in red. And it shows up 11 times. Okay. So now let's go analyze what's going on here. Five mentions of Eved, 11 mentions of Yeled. Yosef is all over the place here. Building storage cities. What's going on? So I want to start start getting towards a solution with this very famous statement of Rav. It's a Gemara on Shabbat on source four, and Rav says the following: Leolam al Adam Beno Bain Habanim, a person should never favor one son over the others. Why? Because of the little extra fabric that Yaakov gave Yosef to of the coat. Uh, his brothers were jealous of him, and one thing led to the other, and we ended up in Mitzrayim. Now, that's a very easy causal path to see. Yaakov favors Yosef. The brothers, as a result, hate Yosef. The brothers, as a result, throw him into the pit. The brothers, as a result, Yosef is sold into slavery. As a result, Yosef, who interprets the dreams and Paro's dreams, becomes the viceroy in Egypt. As a result of that, Um, um, the brothers end up moving down to Egypt to find food, and one thing leads to the other, and we end up in Egypt, and then ultimately we end up enslaved in Egypt. So Rav here is pointing the finger for the cause of the enslavement in Egypt at Yaakov. So before we go further, I want to ask a question, which is a larger question. I'm even going to stop the share because it's not in the sources. It's just a a generic question. Why does anything happen Why does anything happen in history? So I'll start with a simple question. Why was the Beit HaMikdash destroyed in the year 70? And so the answer to that question very much depends on who you ask. If you ask a historian of a classic era, he'll tell you because the Jews were a thorn in the side of the Romans. If you ask a military historian, he'll say because the Jews... Started a rebellion against the Roman Empire, and that was just a really dumb idea, and they got themselves kicked. If you ask a theologian of ours, he will give you one of a number of answers: sinat chinam and below barchu and amdu al Midatadin and pasku bale amana, and all sorts of other explanations that you find throughout midrashic literature of why the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed. By the way, if you ask a theologian of a different religion, he'll tell you, because we rejected God's great gift, and I don't want to go into any more details, but you all understand what I mean. <clears throat> and so the question of why stuff happens is a, a, a multi-layered question. And the reality is that almost anything significant that happens happens for a number of reasons. And uh, just think about a car accident. Car accident happened because the proximate explanation is that the person went through a stop sign, right, and didn't look both ways. And why did they go through the stop sign, didn't look both ways? Because they were looking at their phone. Why were they looking at their phone? Because they just had a very bad meeting with their boss, and they were afraid of what their boss was going to say, and they saw that they got a message. So they looked at the phone to see what the message was. Why did they have a bad, et cetera, et cetera, right? And much the same is said for major historic events. If you want to ask why did World War I break out, the answer is because Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. But why was he assassinated? Go roll back. When it comes to Jewish history, whether of individuals or great individuals or the nation or tribes or whatever, any question you ask about why stuff happens is going to have multiple answers, and they will essentially be nestled one inside the other. So if you ask, why did Yoshua's army lose at Ha'ai? The proximate answer, the median answer, the revealed answer, the one that a political scientist or a military historian could tell you is, they had bad information. And it's right there in the text. They were told, eh, this town's easy, don't send much of the army. Underneath that, we're told, there's a deeper thing, which is, they had lost God's favor because one person had stole from the loot of, of Yericho. And then again, underneath that, I have to find out why did the guy take from them. So there is what they like to call, but I'm not not comfortable with these terms, the pragmatic explanation and the religious explanation. But I think more accurate terms would be the proximate overt causal explanation and the more sublime theological explanation for things. Now, if I ask why were B'nai Yisrael enslaved in Egypt, so the theologian is going to say because um, God said there's going to be a brief ben on the and in order for you guys to be able to achieve what you need to achieve, you have to be first be enslaved for a long time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Rav here is pointing to something different. He's saying we were enslaved in Egypt because we ended up in Egypt because of the way we treated each other. And why do we treat each other so badly? Because father made the big mistake of favoring one son over the other. Okay, I want to set that up here because I want us to go back and take a look at this. If you recall, the last phrase used in Parak Aleph is, any boy born of the Hebrews, throw him into the river. Now, that verb is usually used when it comes to objects, not people. People are not cast down. People are thrown down. We we, we appeal, right? Or then, not lashlich. But notice where it is used. It's used here in source five when describing the brothers' conversation about what to do with Yosef, and then Reuven's come back, and then what they actually did. The brothers say, let's throw him, cast him into one of the cisterns, Reuven comes back and says rather cast him into that cistern. And in reality they cast him down. Now again that's a word that's not used with humans, but it's used here in the context, context of Yosef as if they're treating Yosef like an object to be cast away and cast down and cast out of sight. Notice that Paro uses the same word here. And I promise you Paro didn't use this word. Paro was not speaking Ivry to his, to his community. He was speaking Egyptian which means HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu, here's how I want you to translate what Paro said. I want you to write down Paro's orders in Hebrew, and I want you to use the word Tashli Why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want to use that? Because he's telling you that the reason that these Jewish kids, there's a decree of the Pharaoh to throw the Jewish kids in the water, starts with the brothers casting Yosef into the water of the boar, which ended up being the boar without water. Okay, but there's more to it. If you take a look at Yosef's economic plan, source six, which we get in detail, which seems to be superfluous and really irrelevant to us, the detail of Yosef's plan of getting the Egyptians to sell back their grain and then sell back their animals and all that in order to get grain to plant, and then finally their homes, and then finally themselves, which ends up with the following reality. So it starts with, I want to take you back to, um, it starts with here, the people come to Paro and say, to Yosef and say, take us, take, our, take ourselves, take our land, take everything, we'll all be slaves to Paro, just so we can eat. And by Yosef and call him not Mitzrayim the Pharaoh. That's what Yosef does. He buys all of the land of Mitzrayim for Paro. Now you see that Ta'am Heavir Otol Arim. We have this Pasuk, the, the phrase that says, He took the nation and he, he moved them to cities, meaning he moved them off the land. Population transfer. It's a very strange pasuk. In the Septuagint, it's translated as follows that he moved them a which means slaves. And by the way, in the Samaritan Torah, it reads That Ta'am Heavid Otola Avadim. Do you see it? Instead of vir Otol Arim. It's Havid Otola Avadim, which, by the way, contextually makes a lot more sense. He made all the people slaves. Now, when he made them slaves, he made them slaves in a very um, uh, brilliant and humanitarian way. You're all slaves of Paro. All the land that you are working is Paro's land, but you get to keep 80% of the yield, which, by the way, is a brilliant move because the failure of socialism and the the huge failure of communism is that it robs people of ambition. I work as much as I can or want to, and I'll get taken care of as much as I need, which means I can sit around and do nothing all day, maybe drink vodka all day, and the state's still going to feed me the same amount as if I work hard. So why work hard? Yosef anticipates the problem, Ki'ilu. Anticipates angles, maybe, and says, you know what? We've got to give them a reason to work. So 80% of your yield you keep. Notice the way that it's phrased. Give one-fifth of what you own to Paro. And that becomes a law. That the law is a fifth. Paro always gets a fifth. Oh, very interesting. So now I look back at my opening paragraph and I see sort things popping out at me. The first thing I see popping out at me is Yosef. Yosef is all over the place here, even hinted to Osaf. And it's as if to say, every, the story you're going to hear here is a story that revolves around Yosef. First of all, what, does, what, what is it that the first bit of work that B'nai Israel do is they build storage cities. Whose idea was it to build storage cities in Egypt to start with? That starts right here with Yosef. Yosef tells Paro after the dreams, divide the country into five parts. chimesh, gather the food and put it as a, um, put it away as a reserve for later, and they put it in different cities. In other words, they have storage cities that they built. And now Yosef's descendants are building storage cities for Paro. Notice that five different times the word Evid shows up. And remember that Yosef's Evid agreement with the Egyptian was one-fifth you give to Paro. It's as if there's an allusion here to the fifth. But more critically, how many times does the word Yelid show up? Eleven. Yosef's eleven brothers. And they weren't all complicit in throwing him into the, into the boar. But this is hinting to us about Yosef's growing up, which means we have two stories happening here. Backstories. We have the backstory of the sale of Yosef, which was clearly a cause for them ending up in Egypt at all. But notice when they sold Yosef, when they took Yosef, the first thing they do is they cast him down into the pit. And so the decree is to cast the children into the water. The slavery is overt. Yosef introduced state slavery to Egypt, so now the worm turns, and it's on his own family that now has that is the is the object of that state slavery. And we now see this entire structure. If we take a look at the first parak, laid out as follows. Here you go. In the in the first ha- the parak is made up of two halves. The, not the parak. The parsha is made up of two halves. The first part of the parsha is the first part of this parak is a seven pasuk parsha about the names of who came down. And then we have these 15 psukim all right which is these 7 these 7 and then one at the end what's the first 7 psukim about it's divided equally by the way each section is exactly the same amount of words it's it's a it's a very obvious division what's the first half about it's about bnei yisrael bnei yisrael and it's about their work and this is all about the avodah what's the second half about the second half is all all about the kids The first half is the overt cause. Yosef introduced state slavery, and the state slavery, and and part of that earlier than that, was building storehouses just to keep the grain. Here, B'nai Israel, Nosaf, B'nai Israel have to build storage cities, and they are slaves like Yosef made the Egyptian slaves. What happens in the second half? The second half is more covert. Second half is covert because this is something done not publicly, but quietly, the midwives are told to kill the kids. And there's 11 mentions here. In other words, why are the midwives killing Hebrew kids? Because of the way the brothers treated their own brother. The way that others treat us is a reflection on how we treat each other. A Powerful and true message throughout history. The two halves come together in the last pasuk, which is now public, but it's about children. Any child who's born, any boy who's is born, is, throw, is cast into the water, and that's your 11th load and there's the casting. Now, the point of all this is as follows. We, we open up Sefer shmot and we are astounded. Last we saw Yosef, he was ruling in Egypt. His family was the top 1%. They were doing great. Suddenly, we turn a page, and we find what seems very quickly... Everything is turned upside down. And not only are Yosef's family now having to play the role of state slaves, but um, Jewish children are being killed secretly. But if we look carefully at the text, we realize this is nothing new. This is simply what goes around comes around. This is simply our paying for what our family did earlier in Egypt and earlier to getting us down to Egypt. Now, you ask the question, why were Ben Israel enslaved? So the larger answer could be it's part of God's plan for history. But remember that Hazal left and right and center point to all sorts of things that we did that caused the slavery to happen here at this time as harshly as it did with the cost that it carried. And perhaps we can identify some of the proximate and approximate. Reasons for those particular components of the slavery, in the actions that involved Yosef, both as a actor and as one acted upon, as the subject and the object, as the subject in his interaction with the Egyptians, and as an object in the interaction of the brothers with him. But didn't Hashem uh, promise Avram that that's what would happen? yeah so What did Hashem promise so, uh-huh. what? what did he promise him? Good. He that uh, your your children are going to be enslaved. Yes, uh, so land that's not theirs. Good. And uh, but at the end of the day, you're going to go out. To good. So where where was that supposed to take place? We don't know. That we don't, we know. don't know. It could be that that's <laughs> what Yaakov thought his time in Padan Aram was. That's the rough clips right. That Yaakov thought, hey, I'm a stranger in a foreign land. I'm working very hard. I'm being oppressed. I'm working beyond what I should be working. And I'm being mistreated. And in the end, God judged Lavon and all of the agreements. Yeah, all but, it, but it was nowhere close to the number of years. that. And this mentioned. is nowhere close to the number of years either. The Ramban's claim at the beginning here says it seems like the entire Gzairav, the, 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 the slavery lasted 80 years. Because he says that it starts with the decree of throwing the kids in. Aharon was not affected by that. And Aharon's three years older than Moshe. And then Moshe, when he's 80, takes him out. So we're nowhere close to 400 years, we're not even in Egypt for 400 years. We're in Egypt for, according to Hazal, 210 years. It's a few generations. And the slavery is far less than that. Because remember, we came down to Egypt, and the young kids who came down to Egypt, who lived normal lives, we think, were, there was no slavery till they died. So slavery is much shorter than that in any case. Mm. Now, do I know how this breed of is supposed to play out, or where it's supposed to play out? I don't. So this takes us to Professor Uriel Simon's, I mean, it's not, he didn't make it up, but he gave a good name to it. His approach, his, his explanation referred to as dual causality, or sibatiut kfula. The reality is people do what people do, and they have free will to do it. And it all plays in the God's plan. And so Ahav, uh, as an example, deciding to play the hero, and he was the hero, standing up in the chariot, Kings 2, 22. um, uh, when he was already hit by the arrow, and then the chariot coming back to Shomron, and then the dogs lapping up his blood, now becomes a fulfillment of the Nivuah that Eliyahu said to him after, uh, after Karam Navot, that, that the dogs will lap up your blood. But it was Ahab's free will, free choice, to be the hero in the war. So the people make their choices, and the choices then all play into God's plan. Does that mean if they had chosen differently, God's plan would play out differently? Yeah, it'd play out differently. It wouldn't not play out. It play out, but play out differently. Maybe a different country. Maybe a different time, Maybe a different kind of severity. But this is the Derech of the Ramban also to say that it's what the Avot did that established the pattern for the future. Don't we also yes? Don't we also have a principle that the sins of the fathers do not visit on the children? Yeah. So you're right. But what does that mean? Let's let's examine it for a second. The sins of the fathers do, are not, although that's a machloket, the Chazal say between Moshe and Yechez, but in the meantime, Yish pechato Yimat, we'll take that. Correct. You will not be punished for what your father did. However, what your father did certainly affects you. If your father migrates from this country and moves to some loch, and you end up growing up in a loch, you're going to grow up without the benefits of growing up where you did grow up in Chicago. Right? And if your parents are not careful, I'm, God forbid, but some of these parents are not careful with the way they behave during pregnancy, you might be born with, with an affliction. And so the reality is, of course, you're impacted on what your parents do. So if your parents set up a, I'm, just as an example, a very unpleasant social uh, interaction with a very powerful family, it could be that that's going to impact on you and you could be the object of their scorn or hatred. It's still going to happen. So if Yosef comes in and he established, I want you to picture if you're an Egyptian and you know that there's a family of people who are descended from migrants, they're Hebrews, they're people we don't like at all, we talk about they're shepherds, and they've come in and suddenly we turn around and these guys are the landowners, these guys are the wealthy in our country, there's every reason to feel resentment and it's very easy for a leader to turn the angry crowd against them. Right now, had we come into the land and gotten the grain and gone back to Canaan, it would have that promise would have had to play out differently. And had we come in the land and refused Yosef's largesse and said, We'll be like all the other Egyptians, we won't own land, we'll work for the state, it would have played out differently. Would God's plan have played out? Of course, but where, when, how? That's God's plan. Right, So we have to remember that we we play our role, God plays his role, and now what we're trying to do and what I'm suggesting in this shiur, is to see how the specifics of what played out in Mitzrayim were perhaps something that we brought, we ourselves introduced, both by the way we, the economic policy of Yosef, perhaps more critically and more painfully, the way that the brothers treated each other. By the way, in the Midrashim, the way the brothers treated Yosef is one of the most powerful themes that repeats in Jewish history. As Jews hurt, being hurt by the fact that Yosef was treated that way by his brothers, it is the central theme in the martyrology of the Asaragamahut. Mahut. all starts there. So hopefully, this gives us a, a new sense of understanding the opening chapters of Shmot and perhaps how Shmot, and as I said in the opening this year, Hashmot really is the the denouement of Sefer Bereishit. Preferential treatment is at the heart of what went wrong with Yaakov and uh, and Yosef. Let's say uh-huh. did Yosef not learn that preferential treatment for his family would result in something bad as well on a larger scale? Yeah, correct. So if you look at at, at Yosef looking at the regular rest of B'nai Yaakov and the rest of the Egyptians with all his family, and he's preferring one over the other, you're right. I don't think that Yosef looked at it that way. And I don't yeah. think the Egyptians at the time did. I think the Egyptians at the time were so beholden to Yosef, and so gratified and, and, and filled with gratitude towards him that he had saved them, that, okay, your brothers, they should get the best. But, you know, it, the, these things do have an impact, and over time the impact is felt. Look throughout history. These are the lessons that we see in, in all of history.